want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 17 this morning. That's where we will anchor and land. Really be helpful this morning if you have something in front of you, um, because we are going to unpack Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. You may be familiar with Peter Jenkins, uh, author of the bestseller, Walk Across America. He decided to walk across the United States to find out what life was all about. Seems like a strange idea to me, but that's what he did. Um, It's a powerful image. Um, Even the movie Forrest Gump, if you remember, kind of did a parody of his travels across America. And something great happened to him during his travels, um, something that he really never anticipated. And it was this, he found faith in Christ while going through Alabama of all places he came across a huge revival he decided to attend and at some point God's word grabbed this man and when the invitation was given to become a Christian Jenkins walked down the aisle gave his life to Christ and he said these words he reflected on that night with these words quote I was on a mountaintop that night. The feelings lasted for a long time, but that mountaintop hasn't lasted all these years. Maybe I've been on more mountaintops than some, but I've also climbed, sometimes crawled out of some awfully steep valleys too, end quote. And as I thought about that, I thought about this. A life of faith finds itself sometimes on the tops of mountains, doesn't it? But a life of faith also finds itself in the valleys. There are times when you and I feel so intimate, so close with Christ, with our Lord, we are We are together. There is togetherness. We feel it. The Holy Spirit is dwelling with us. We feel the Spirit's presence upon us. But on the other hand, there are times when we are in the valleys where we spiritually cry out to the Lord, wondering where God is in our life, right? And you hear this in the words of David in Psalm 13. He says, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? (laughs) Like, like, where are you? How long will you hide your face from me? Mountains and valleys. This morning, our gospel reading, there are three men on a mountaintop experience, both literally and figuratively. And no doubt, it profoundly profoundly affected these three men. Peter wrote about this event in his own writings in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says these words. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, what? Eyewitnesses to his majesty, his glory. We saw it with our own eyes. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory, 
from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were what? We were with him on that holy mountain. We were there. We heard it. We saw it. Most commentators, I've done a lot of reading. I, I, there was a lot of fear and trembling going into preaching this passage. I've never preached this passage. It's the first time I've ever gone through it. And so I had to do lots of reading this week to get help. I needed help. And I was crying out to the Lord. But most commentators, most New Testament scholars, almost all the things that I read, I was picking up on this. This event was huge in the life of Christ. Most commentators and New Testament scholars believe this is the most important event in the life of Christ outside of his birth and outside of his death and resurrection. This is huge, epic, what's happening here. And so my task with you this morning is twofold. It's to answer two questions. Very simply, number one, what in the world is happening here? What is going on? Because this can be head spinning when you look at this passage. So if you have your Bibles, we're just we're going to dive in and I'm going to try to be a good student of the word and just unpack this passage for us. So Matthew 17 verses 1 through 9. But first, let's back up to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, starting with verse 13. Jesus is with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. Geographically, that's where they are. And Jesus asks them a question. Remember the question? Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Peter, being the good student that he is, said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was absolutely correct, right? Ding, ding, ding. Got it. But then Jesus does what? Well, he begins to unpack in verse 21 what's about to unfold in his life. So he kind of fast forward and he says to the disciples, I am going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And what was Peter's response? Do you remember? Right? Verse 22, Peter took him aside and what did he do? He rebuked him. He rebuked Christ. He had serious issues with this dialogue, with this rhetoric, that you're going to die and suffer. And so now in chapter 17, six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, verse 1. Mountain should have tipped them off that something big was going to happen because biblically, Mountains play a huge role, don't they? God passed by Moses on Mount Sinai. You heard that this morning. God met Elijah at, this one's a little tougher, Mount Horeb. Mountains play a huge role. Epic things happened on mountains. Mount Carmel, right? Fire, brimstone, Elijah. Notice, though, that Jesus only takes who with him? Peter, James, and John, right? This inner circle of these three, they had a crucial role with Christ. 
very special men, close to Christ. He would also take these three men into the home of Jairus' daughter. Do you remember when Jesus laid his hands on Jairus' daughter, raises her from the dead? He only took three with him, and it was those three men, Peter, James, and John. He would do this later in the Garden of Gethsemane when he beckons Peter and James and John to go with him to pray for a little while. And what did they do? Fell asleep. Verse 2, he is transfigured. Jesus is transfigured. Matthew says it like this, his face shone like the sun. You ever looked into the sun? It's pretty bright. And his clothes became white, white as light. Mark said these words, clothes became radiant, intensely white. So this is how Mark describes it. Intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. <laughs> it's amazing how they're trying to describe this experience. And they, it's just falling flat, isn't it? I mean, if we could only have saw what they saw. Every Christmas we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Do you remember the lines to that song? Veiled in flesh. What? The Godhead see. Not, not here. Not in Matthew 17. The veil is gone. Majesty, glory were shining through up on that mountain. It's like as if a corner of his flesh is just kind of folded up, flap. And these men are just beholding his glory, his majesty, unveiled. And then verse 3, Moses and Elijah show up talking with him. There is absolutely no scholarly consensus as why Moses and Elijah are there. There's no consensus. There's lots of answers. No one really knows for sure, so I'm going to do my best shot. I think it's helpful to know a lot about Moses and Elijah because they are eerily similar. So here are some ways that they're similar. Both have seen the glory of God, right? Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Both were persecuted and rejected. Both were communicators of the word of God, right? Moses being the lawgiver and Elijah being a prophet, communicator of God's words. Both had very unusual endings to their lives here on earth if you remember. So I think what is happening is, in, in my mind, a bit of comparing and contrasting. In, in other words, there is, I, I think what's happening here is God is communicating to us is there is a greater Moses on that mountain. A greater Moses. A greater lawgiver. In fact, a fulfiller of the law on that mountain. There is a greater prophet on that mountain, a greater vessel carrying the mantle of God's words. And I think the role that Moses and Elijah had on that mountain was to do one thing, and it was to point. <laughs> to point at Christ, saying, don't look at us, look at him. 
There is one figure on the mountain that is the focal point. Moses and Elijah are saying, it's him. It's Christ. And all of his majesty. It's all about him. Verse 4, Peter's reply with this group of men standing on a mountain is none less than masculine. Let's build something. Right? I'll make three tents. Literally, I'm putting up tabernacles. I am dwelling here. Right? It's like I'm camping right here. The key statement, right? You see it there. Lord, what? It is so good that we are here. Do you say that on Sunday morning? (laughs) It is so good that we're here. Right? I love this place. I love to be with God's people. Peter's saying, this is so good. I love it. I want to dwell here. I'm in amazement. I'm in wonder. And then verse 5 happens, right? This bright cloud overshadows them. Again, if you know your Old Testament, this is a sign of God's presence. Speaks the words, what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Three, three words you don't want to miss. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John fall on their faces. They're terrified. Jesus touches them. They descend back down into the valley with two words, raised and dead. So think about that. Second question that we're going to unpack is now, what does this mean for you and I? What, what practical implications about what just happened, what does it mean for you and I? How do we theologically now tie the lines to our lives that we've just read? Here's number one. Our faith is strengthened when we fix our eyes on the glory of Christ. Our faith is strengthened. We are emboldened, strengthened. We receive power when we fix our eyes on Christ. Because it's about Christ. Right? This portion of God's word is a confirmation about the deity of Christ. In other words, what Peter and James and John, what they needed was not just a word of confirmation that Jesus was the Son of God. They needed to see it. They needed to behold it. Peter needed to see that the object of his joy and his affections was standing in front of him in all majesty and all glory. And God is saying to us this morning, fix your eyes upon my Son. What are the objects of your joy? What are the objects in your life of your affections? Just think about those questions. What gives me joy? What raises my affections? Is it my spouse? My kids? Sports? Is it not Christ? 
There will undoubtedly be change in your life, in my life, when we fix our eyes upon Christ. There's just no doubt. Christ will turn your life upside down. You will love like no other. You'll be motivated to serve like no other. Motivated to trust God. Whether on the mountain or in the valley. And this, brothers and sisters, is a mountaintop experience. Right? When we behold God and fix our eyes on him. This this song came to mind this week as I was writing this message. Here are the lyrics. Who has beheld the the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God, seated on the throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come. Let us adore him. Here's number two application. Fixing our eyes on Christ inclines our ears to listen to Christ. Right? What difference does it make this morning if you just behold and not listen? Right? This isn't just St. Paul's is Christ-centered. St. Paul's is Christ-centered, but it's biblically driven. Which means what? We not only fix our eyes on Christ, but we listen to Christ. We are people of the word of God. We're biblically driven. Right? Right seeing begets right listening. Beholding begets listening. And not only did Peter, James, and John need to see the Son of God in all of his majesty, but they needed to hear the words, listen to him. Peter especially. Why? Because the words of Jesus are now, I am going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He is on the march to the cross. And he knew his disciples were not going to take the news well. He says this in 16 verse 21. He says it again in chapter 17 verse 22. He says it again in chapter 20 verse 17. I am going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. The great Charles Spurgeon said this. I'm so moved by this quote. I read it in the first service. These, he says, quote, these three apostles were specially chosen to see Christ in his glory because they were afterwards to behold him in his greatest agony. I cannot imagine what must have been their feelings when they first saw him brighter than the sun and then beheld him red as the rose with bloody sweat. I know not which sight a man might more desire to see Christ robed in light and brighter than the sun or to see him crimsoned with his own blood. The very essence 
of his being poured out in agony for us. Oh, the loveliness of an agonizing Savior. It's fitting, brothers and sisters, that we are upon Lent. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. We are, we're entering Lent, right? We're entering that road to the cross. When again we hear the words that we need to hear this morning. Yet a little while the world will see me no more. The world will see me no more. But what? But you will see me. Because I live what? You also will live. So brothers and sisters, do you see this morning? Are your eyes fixed upon Christ? And brothers and sisters, do you hear the words? Are you moved by the words of Christ? Because I live, you also will live. May God grant the glory of this message in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.